This week on the show, we talk about Wayland on BSD for NetBSD. My BSD sucks less than yours is what we revisit. Even on SSDs, the, outgoing act, the ongoing activity can slow down ZFS scrubs drastically. OpenBSD on the desktop is a tutorial for you. A simple shell status bar for OpenBSD and CWM is what we have for you. And more, of course, this week's episode of BSDNet. Now, episode 372, Slow SSD Scrubs, recorded on the 7th of October 2020. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap, the online backup for the truly paranoid. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow to find everything that you need to make backups today. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Kreuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome to this week's episode. We are glad that you are back listening to us and enjoying all the news from the BSD world out there. And of course, we have them as always. And the first one that we start with is Wayland on BSD. Uh, this is over on the official NetBSD blog. And it's the trials and tribulations of Wayland on NetBSD. So after I posted about the new default window manager in NetBSD in a previous post, I got a few questions, including when is NetBSD switching from X11 to Wayland? Wayland being X11's new rival. In this blog post, hopefully I can explain why we aren't yet doing that. Last year and earlier this year, I was uh, responsible for porting the first working Wayland compositor to NetBSD, SWC. I chose it because it looked small and hackable. You can try out by installing the VLOX uh, window manager, V-E-L-O-X, uh, from Package Source. And they have a screenshot of that here. But difficulties. Uh, in the Wayland system, the compositor, or display server, is responsible for managing the displays, the inputs, and window management. Generally, uh, this means a lot of OS-specific code is contained in the compositor. Wayland does not define protocols for features like X11 users expect. Uh, so things like screenshots, screen locking, and window management. Either you implement those inside the compositor, which is lots of work that has to be redone, or you define your own protocol extension. The Wayland reference implementation is a small set of libraries that can be used to build a compositor or a client application. These libraries currently have hard dependencies on Linux kernel APIs like ePoll. In package source, we've patched the libraries to add KQ support, uh, but the patches haven't been accepted upstream. Wayland is written with an assumption that it's going to run on Linux to the extent that every client application tends to include, you know, the Linux slash input.h file. Because Wayland's designers didn't see the need to define an OS neutral way to get the mouse button IDs. So far, all Wayland compositors except SWC have a hard dependency on lib input, which only supports the Linux input APIs, although those were cloned on FreeBSD to provide something that would work with anything that needs lib input. In NetBSD, we have an entirely different API called WSCONS, uh, which is a fairly simple to write code for. Uh, someone just needs to go out there and do it. And uh, you can use my code in SWC as a reference. So in general, Wayland is moving away from the modularity, portability, and standardization of the X server. But is it ready for production? No, but you can play with it. SWC has some remaining bugs and some stability problems and is currently incompatible with key applications like Firefox, but others like LuaKit work, so do things like QT5, GTK3, and SDL2. 
not being able to run X11 applications currently is quite limiting. Uh, other popular compositors are not yet available. Alternatively, someone could write some new one. Also, you need a supported GPU or SOC with kernel mode setting uh, since safe software fallbacks don't work here. So far, we've only tested it using Intel GPUs. And then they have their list of tasks still outstanding. They want to uh, add support for WSCons to more Wayland compositors and persuade developers to accept those patches. Persuade developers not to have hard dependencies on ePoll and instead use an abstraction layer like libevent. So it'll work on different, multiple different backends. Uh, updating the NetBSD kernel DRM and KMS stack. This is a difficult undertaking that involves porting code from the Linux kernel, which is a very fast moving target, but getting support for newer versions of DRM and the atomic mode setting and the Glamour X server for being able to run X11 applications inside Wayland. Uh, and of course, newer drivers for the AMD GPU as well. Plus they would like to add support for basic non-DRM KMS uh, frame buffers to a Wayland compositor. Uh, X11 can run from a basic unaccelerated NetBSD frame buffer, but it's not currently possible with Wayland. And they say, I've decided to take a break from this since it's a fairly huge undertaking and an uphill battle. Right now, X11 combined with a compositor like PyCom or XComp Manager is a more mature option. I see. Yeah, I remember <laughs> last, well, I almost said last year, but it's not that far off. In uh, January in um, or beginning of February at FOSDEM, uh, we had a talk at the BSD Dev Room where one of the benefits of having Wayland instead of X11 was they could shave off an hour extra battery life from their laptops by just running Wayland. That was still under development and a lot of things weren't working yet, but it's one of the things that make people excited about this. And yeah, having that on various BSDs and eventually on NetBSD's package source will allow it to run on many other operating systems. So we'll watch this space. Uh, then next up, we have uh, my BSD sucks less than yours. This is an old, yet not too irrelevant at this point, a uh, little friendly battle between Baptiste Darosin from FreeBSD and Antoine Jacoteau from OpenBSD, where they, with a little bit of a, you know, smiley face, uh, you know, battled out the differences of the BSDs. And here's the paper for it, or the abstract, because they did that at least at two BSD conferences. Yeah, there were... Uh, I think a, an extended version at EuroBSDCon 2017, uh, a version at ACBSDCon 2017, and a truncated version at FOSDEM 2017. Um, so there's also video of the Euro and FOSDEM versions of this. Um, and they there's a few parts, you know, some of the high points they cover in both, but they also cover different parts. You know, basically, uh, when comparing operating systems, it turns out there's a lot to talk about and they couldn't fit it all even in a double slot at the conference. Um, so it's definitely worth checking out if you're uh, interested in that uh, because they have all the details written down, but they also have a video version if you're interested. Uh, yep. And uh, of course, they they not do that to, you know, uh, create this big descent between the two, but, you know, in a friendly way, see what the other people are doing, see what the other peoples are about to solve in a similar way and kind of see, oh, you can solve a problem in different ways or have different approaches to them and not really, you know, battle it out until the blood comes out. So uh, just to read the abstract here, this paper will look at some of the differences between the FreeBSD and OpenBSD operating systems. It is not intended to be solely technical, but will also show the different visions 
and design decisions that rule the, th the way things are implemented. It is expected to be a subjective view from two BSD developers and does not pretend to represent these projects in any way. We don't want it to be a troll talk, but rather a casual and friendly exchange with nicely making fun of each other while we would do over a drink. Of course, we shall try and hit eat and hit where it hurts when that makes sense. Uh, obviously, we both have our personal subjective preferences and we will explain why. Showing some of the weaknesses may encourage people to contribute in some areas. Most of the topics discussed here could warrant their own paper and talk, and as such, some may not get the deep analysis they deserve. This is a totally biased talk from two different perspectives. And then, you know, they start with the history, you know, why they did that and some of the uh, ideas behind it. Then Act 1 has ports and packages. Then in Scene 2, they do release model and engineering. Later on in Scene 3, the binary updates are discussed. And then Scene 4 has package building and delivery. Scene 5 has SMP and scheduling, so there's plenty of different things uh, out there and compared. Scene 6 has the base system, part 1. And Scene 7 has security sandboxing, as well as in Scene 8, they do project governance discussions. And Scene 9 has project organization, which is a bit different, but um, not too different. And then they go to Act 2 with BSDification. That's interesting. Uh, scene 2 has over-engineering and a lot of other things are in there. So it's a big document and you can definitely get a glimpse of how different operating systems or different BSDs do their daily things. Sometimes a bit different than the others. Not to say worse or uh, better. Just different comparison. And I think that's the best way to do these kind of things. Yeah, you know, it's a very commonly asked question is, you know, should I use this BSD or that BSD? And this was a way of answering that, uh, but also in a way that would be entertaining to people who are very familiar with both of them uh, and would provide a, an entertaining talk at the conference. Yeah, and the two speakers did a great, great job, you know, doing that in a friendly way and uh, <laughs> with a little twink and uh, smiley face. Yes, and they tried to have like a, a boxing bell to go <laughs> off when they switch turns. Round and so four, on. start. <laughs> yeah. All right, then next up, it's news roundup time. And Alan has a great story for us. Then, because even on SSDs, ongoing activity can slow down ZFS scrubs drastically, it seems. Yep. Uh, so this is from uh, Chris Seiberman's blog, uh, who runs uh, a storage cluster over at the University of Toronto. And he says, back in the days of our er, OmniOS uh, file servers, which used spinning rest hard drives across iSCSI, we ended up changing a bunch of the kernel tunables to speed up our ZFS scrubs and saw a significant improvement. When we migrated to our newer platform, uh, which is using Linux uh, OpenZFS with SSDs, we didn't bother including these tunables or their Linux equivalent uh, because I expected the SSDs were fast enough that it wouldn't actually matter. Indeed, our SSD pool generally scrubs uh, like lightning. Our Linux file server uses a ZFS version before the sequential scrub feature, and it's possible that sequential scrub would make changes to this story. Anyway, this is uh, this weekend, a ZFS pool with 1.68 terabytes of space took about two days to scrub, about 48 hours and 15 minutes to be precise. Uh, this is not uh, something that happens normally. The size, uh, This size of pool generally scrubs much, much faster, on the order of a few hours. When I poked at it a bit, none of the disks seems unusually slow and there were no signs of other problems. It was 
uh, just that the scrub was running very slowly. However, looking at NFS client metrics on our metric system suggested that there was continuous ongoing NFS activity for some of the file systems on that pool. Although I didn't know for sure, this looks like a classic case of even a modest level of regular ZFS activity causing ZFS scrub code to back off significantly on IO. Uh, since this is on SSDs, this isn't really necessarily, uh, at least for us, we could almost certainly sustain both a more or less full speed scrub and our regular read IO, you know, significant write IO might be another story though, uh, but this is because it's a potential performance impact on SSDs in general. However, there is no timing. Our current version of ZFS is sticking to con the conservative, or sorry, with no tuning, our current version of ZFS is sticking to its very conservative defaults which were intended for hard drives. In one sense, this isn't surprising since it's how ZFS has traditionally reacted to IO during scrub. In another sense, it is because it's not something I expected to see affecting us on SSDs. If I had expected to see it, I'd have carried forward our ZFS tunables to speed up the scrubs. And he says, now that I look at our logging data, it appears that ZFS scrubs on this pool have been slow for some time, although not two days slow. They used to complete in a couple of hours, then they suddenly jumped to over 24 hours. Uh, more investigation may be needed. So uh, in the other uh, the post he referenced in the beginning, the tunables he was talking about uh, are commonly tuned on, on FreeBSD as well. And that's the scrub delay, uh, which defaults to a value of four, which means insert a delay of four ticks, which I'll get to in a second, between each scrub IO. So every actual read or write you're doing to the disk, well, I guess with a scrub, just the read, between every read, uh, sleep for four ticks. What's one of the things that's interesting there is on a Lumos, the default tick rate was 100 per second, but on FreeBSD, it's a thousand. But if you're in a VM, then it's a hundred. So the default value on FreeBSD was less conservative uh, on hardware, but this is as conservative as a Lumos on you know, VM. Uh, I don't know what Linux did there and how that will actually affect currently, but I think we should for sure adjust this tunable to always be measured in milliseconds no matter so it doesn't depend whether you're in a vm or not how fast you're going to do the scrub so when there's any other activity in the pool zfs will sleep for four milliseconds or 40 milliseconds depending on your configuration uh between each read which so on the default freebsd with a scrub delay of four that means you're sleeping for four milliseconds between each read means you can't possibly do more than 250 reads per second, right? Because there's only a thousand milliseconds in a second. So if you change that value to two, suddenly you can do 500 reads per second uh, or up to that much. Mm, that's sleeping. Uh, and so this is how you can control how much iOS scrub does so that it doesn't necessarily impact the other workloads you're trying to do, right? If your system is busy during the day and needs to to service your users, you don't want it spending all of its IOPS doing a scrub that's just happening in the background. For a spinning disk pool, 250 IOPS can be a lot. Like that's, you need more than a couple of VDEVs in order to be able to get that kind of performance out of spinning drives generally. And you know, you probably want the scrub to not be using more than 50% of your IO just for the scrub. And so if you have hard drives, you might want to tune that value up to say 10 so that only 100 IOPS, or basically one whole disk of your uh, IOPS will be used up for scrub and the rest will be available to your workload. But there's a second setting called scan idle. And this is how long the pool has been doing nothing other than scrubs, at which time the, the speed limit on a scrub will be taken off. So if there's nothing else happening uh, for 
half of a second, then ZFS will take the, the speed limit off and let the scrub go full speed. But as soon as another read or write from a user program comes in, it'll put the brakes back on until there's been no non-scrub activity for that amount of time again. I see. And that's where you could end up seeing a very different uh, result on your scrub based on whether or not something is consistently putting the brakes on or not. And so, yeah, if you have a pool with a lot of SSDs and maybe you have access to, you know, 50,000 IOPS, you probably don't want to limit your scrub to 250 of those. You can give it, you know, thousands or whatever. But because of the way the rate limiting currently works by just being this coarse sleep, you know, you can set it to zero to have no delay or one, which is still going to limit you to a thousand IOPS. So it's definitely something that uh, the ZFS people are looking at a, a different way of handling that. Like detecting the underlying media and how fast it could go? Um, that's one option. Another option is to literally just let you type in the number of IOPS you want or something. Yeah, right. Uh, and, and do something like that in order to let you rate limit it. But yeah, if you don't want the scrub to be slowed down, you can just set the delay to zero. Okay, yeah. So that's uh, doable nowadays with the CCTLs. And then the other feature he mentioned was the sequential scrub feature. Uh, so this one is traditionally what a ZFS scrub did is it started at the top of the kind of tree of blocks that uh, ZFS is and read each object and then checked its checksum. As part of doing that, it's basically going through every object in the file system, but it's doing that in the order the, of the object numbers, which means when a file's been modified, you end up reading all over the drive. So the Grub and Resilver uh, in traditional ZFS has basically been random. You have to read from all over the drive uh, and that can slow it down a lot. You know, it's the disadvantage you have compared to the advantage of if you don't do a scrub this way, you have to scrub every block. And if you want to do every block in order, currently with ZFS, if you only have 1.68 terabytes of space used on your pool of 25 terabytes, you only have to scan 1.68 terabytes of it. Whereas another kind, you would have to scan all of it or resilver all of it. But because of the way ZFS works, we have to know which object it is to in order to find the checksum. So it has to do it in this object order. It can't really do it this other way. But as a hybrid, what the sequential scrub does is it walks those the block tree and finds all of the addresses on the hard drives that it needs to scan. But instead of scanning them right away, like it would have done traditionally, it puts them in a list, a special kind of a list called a range tree that's basically sorted in the order of the hard drive and says, you know, you need to scan this block through this block for every continuous range and a separate entry for discontinuous ranges. And as it, so it starts scanning and looking at all these blocks and finding out what it needs to scrub and putting that in this list until the size of the list gets to uh, some internal limit, which is like some fraction of your available memory. Once the list is full, it looks for the biggest chunk of data in there, the longest contiguous range of blocks that needs to be done. Uh, and it will go and issue that and do that work and actually reading it uh, in the case of a scrub or repairing it in this case of a resilver. Once it's done, it'll then switch back to scanning mode and fill up that range tree again, right? Because we've only taken out the biggest chunk. We left all the smaller chunks still in there. And as we keep scanning, we hope those chunks will fill out into nice, big, chunky ones. Because, you know, reading a, a one gigabyte range off the disk during a scrub uh, is a lot faster than reading, you know, a lot of really small ranges. Yeah, from all over. Yeah, like doing 100 megabytes of random 4K reads is a lot slower than just doing a gigabyte of, of straight reads, mm. of linear reads. Okay, cool. 
Yeah, that's uh, the background information that you normally don't get when you just read the article. Uh, so that's why we have this show, among other reasons. Um, we have another interesting article for people who want to maybe start out with OpenBSD. This one is OpenBSD on the desktop. In particular, a basic setup with Xorg and DWM. So there's uh, a part two in the title. So we guess there will be a part two and uh, it comes out. We will mention it in the show, of course. But part one has um, Patrick Bucher, I think, because it's a Swiss domain. So I say Bucher, not Bucher. Um, be that as it may. Uh, Patrick writes, let's install OpenBSD on a Lenovo ThinkPad X270. I use this computer for my computer science studies. It has both Arch Linux and Windows 10 installed as dual boot. Now that I'm no longer required to run Windows, excellent, um, I can ditch the dual boot and install an operating system of my choice. All right, preparation. Uh, first, I grabbed my ThinkPad running Arch Linux and some USB dongle big enough for the IMD64 mini root image, roughly five megabytes, that is. Uh, the small image does not include the file sets, which will be downloaded during the installation instead. I also download the SHA256 checksums from the Swiss Mirror, in this case, and verify the download image before I copy it on my dongle. So this is just a DD away. Now, the installation um, on the ThinkPad in this particular case gives us um, a connection to the network through Ethernet. That's uh, The Wi-Fi usually needs to be installed separately so only Ethernet will work out of the box. The BIOS has UEFI activated. OpenBSD and UEFI has issues on older hardware, at least on a 2014 Dell laptop. Uh, okay, but let's try it on this laptop anyway. Uh, plugging in the dongle and prepared before and starting the computer. Patrick interrupts the regular boot with enter and picks an alternative boot method by pressing F12. So that's fairly straightforward for any kind of boot from non-disk and picks the USB dongle, of course, and after roughly a minute, the installer presents itself. Now he follows basically the steps of setting it up uh, within OpenBSD. That's fairly straightforward, and you can uh, pick and choose some of his options, maybe pick a different time zone in this case. Um, but after that, you get to the first boot, and when you restart the laptop, OpenBSD boots. So this takes some time, um, then a little longer than Arch Linux does, which uses systemd, whereas OpenBSD uses RC, which performs the startup tasks sequentially. There's a message showing up that various firmware, uh, you know, Intel firmware, IWM firmware, and so on, uh, have been installed automatically. Very nice indeed. And now Wi-Fi. So with the IWM firmware that has been installed, he can now connect right away to his Wi-Fi network and creates a file called etchostname.iwm0 which uh, hostname being a literal string and IWM being the Wi-Fi network card. Connection to the Wi-Fi network consists of a single DHCP and WID, the access point, WPA key, and then the key itself. And then the network can be restarted uh, for that using etc net start with the interface IWM0 as a parameter. And the script is kind enough to set the file permissions of etc hostname as well to 640. That's OpenBSD security right there. And then connects to my Wi-Fi network. Then you can unplug the Ethernet cable and ping, uh, for example, OpenBSD.org, which works fine even after a restart. Then he gets into installing the GUI, in this case, DWM, as mentioned. So that's basically um, the dynamic window manager for people who have not heard about it. And a couple of other tools. So he uses DMenu, ST, SL status, SLock, and all created and maintained by the Suckless community. 
and he walks through. Uh, why do we git? We need git first. Okay, so package add uh, git. This is package underscore add, by the way, not package space add. That's a different tool. Um, then he fetches the source for dwm, dmenu. That's not... Why does he do that manually? Couldn't he just get that from package source? Hmm. Whatever reason, uh, the instructions are there to clone it, and then you build that using make. Ah, there's an error message, apparently, when running make, and uh, ft2build.h final found, which reminds him of building dwm on FreeBSD roughly a month before. Since they can find the header file at another location, they can just put it where it belongs, and then the make will finish. So that's a little extra step. That's fine. And then uh, after a make install, you have the desktop available and can make some modifications to your uh, keys. So you can set it up as you like. And then he walks us through building ST and other utilities, like setting up a little menu, SL status to get a little status bar, and so a little configuring a little later you just need to set up your x init rc your dot x init rc more like and set your uh, keyboard map uh, sl status to the background so that it doesn't stop the next command from executing dwm and with that you have your nice little desktop yeah so he shows a little bit of code he has here uh, so that his sl status will show the cpu percentage the battery percentage memory percentage which key map he currently is running uh, it sounds like maybe he has to switch between the, the Swiss one and an English one, depending on what he's doing, uh, and then the current date and time. Yep. So you can adapt that to your needs, but uh, the instructions itself are perfectly fine to get you set up with an OpenBSD desktop. Very good. And again, if you have part two, we will mention that as well. Yeah, and it sounds like they have uh, a similar post about FreeBSD setup as well. Ah, yes, you can compare notes. Yeah, from a couple of weeks before. Mm -hmm. Uh they really dug into like compiling X and everything, though. <laughs> uh, and they mentioned they did that deliberately. Though. Okay. Yeah, there are other ways to get X. Yeah. Uh, so the next one we have is similar, but much, much smaller. <laughs> so a simple shell status bar for OpenBSD with CWM. These days, I try to use simple and stock software as much as possible on my OpenBSD laptop. I've been playing with CWM for weeks, and I was missing having a status bar. After trying things like Tint2 and Polybar, I discovered a term bar. As I love scripting, I decided to build my own. Uh, the idea behind term bar is to launch a terminal that will loop printing the information you want via a shell script. It's a bit like using xset root in DWM. That terminal will be ignored by CWM and stay in some reserved place. And they have some screenshots here. Uh, so resources, uh, using an X resources file, start defining a dedicated resource class and a set of properties. So we you know, set what font it's going to use and what font size, how big the bar is going to be, whether it'll have borders and lines and scroll bars and all that kind of stuff. Uh, then you create your term bar script. So they have an example one here that says, you know, if it gets a uh, sig hub, it will uh, restart itself. If it uh, gets sig int or sig quit or sig term, it will exit. And then has functions to show the battery, the calendar, CPU, network, uh, the volume controls, and which window is active. And then it just does a little while true loop and prints that information out. Okay, yeah. Then they just edit their CWMRC file and uh, set up their term bar and define where it's going to be and set it up so that as part of their .x session, it will execute that term bar. And there you go. You have a little shell script based terminal status bar. Mm -hmm. Yep. Information at a glance. 
All right, then we have some beastie bits from here and there over the net. Uh, the first is that Dragonfly BSD has uh, run uh, well, a follow-up release more like 5.8.3, which has been released to address some issues. And those were uh, in libcrypto. Uh, they avoid a null or zero cofactor in ECC the parameters. So that need, needed fixing before making things worse, I guess. And in libarchive to avoid the use of the free in, in the raw reader. So ARR. Are those still around? They have been super popular yep. when I was younger. But now raw. Yep, uh, is... That archive format is still around mm -hmm. and libarchive can read it. Uh and now can do it without using memory after a freeze hit. <laughs> so yeah, it looks like some basic security fixes there. Yeah, so if you uh, do an update or install a fresh Dragonfly BSD box, then grab this tag, then you have those included already. Uh, speaking of fixes and new things, OpenSSH 8.4 is out. Yes, so this one is very new news here uh, when we're recording this, but... Uh, will be definitely be available everywhere by the time you're watching this episode. Once again, we'd like to thank the OpenSSH community for their continued support of the project, especially those who contributed code or patches, reported bugs, tested snapshots, or donated to the project. And they have a link there, openssh.com slash donations.html if you want to donate. So they would like to point out some further deprecation notices. It is now possible to perform a chosen prefix attack against the SHA-1 algorithms for about $50,000 US in cloud instance money. Uh, for this reason, we will be disabling the SSH-RSA public key signature algorithm by default in a near future release. This algorithm is unfortunately still used widely despite the existence of better algorithms, being the only remaining public key uh, signature algorithm specified by the original uh, SSH-RFCs. Your better alternatives are using the uh, RSA-SSA2 signature algorithm, uh, which uses you know SHA-256 or 512 instead of SHA-1. Uh, these algorithms have the advantage of using the same key type of SSH-RSA, but use the safer SHA-2 hashing algorithms. These have been supported since OpenBS or OpenSSH 7.2 and are already used by default if the client and server support them. Or you can use the SSH-825519 signature algorithm, which has been supported uh, since OpenSSH 6.5. Other advantage to that is the key is much shorter, which is nice, uh, makes it much easier for sharing the public key. Or you can use the ECDSA algorithms like ECDSA, SHA-2, NIST, P256, or whatever. These have been supported since OpenSSH version 5.7. To check whether a server is using the weak public key algorithm for host authentication, try to connect with this string where you basically say uh, option host key algorithms equals minus SHA-RSA. So that'll disable that algorithm. And as long as you can still connect, you'll know that it'll be fine. If you can't, you know that you'll need to address that before the next OpenSSH upgrade. And you'd rather do that now than in a hurry when you know the next OpenSSH comes out and it doesn't work anymore. Uh, they also have some security fixes. The SSH-Agent uh, now restricts SSH agents from signing web challenges for FIDO and U2F keys. Uh, when signing messages in SSH agent using a FIDO key that has an application string that does not start with SSH colon, ensure that the message being signed is one of the forms expected for the SSH protocol, which is currently public key authentication or SSH signature signatures. This prevents the SSH agent forwarding on a host that has FIDO keys uh, attaching granted the ability for remote side to sign challenges for web authentication using your keys too. So this is uh, making sure that if you're U2F or FIDO key is being used to sign for SSH, 
it can't be used to sign for not SSH as well. Uh, then the SSH keygen utility now enables FIDO 2.1 credential protection extension when generating FIDO resident keys. So this new version of the specification uh, introduced the feature to better protect uh, keys that will reside on the, the token. We use this option to require a pin prior to all operations that may retrieve the resident key from the FIDO token. There are also a couple of potentially incompatible changes you want to look out for. For FIDO and U2F support, OpenSSH recommends the use of libfido2 version 1.5 or greater. Older libraries have limited support for the uh, expense of disabling particular features. These include resident keys, pin required keys, and multiple attached tokens. Um, the other thing is the portable OpenSSH distribution now requires AutoMake to rebuild the configure script uh, and supporting files. This is not required when simply building portable OpenSSH from a release tarball. Then there's a list of other changes, um, including better support for FIDO keys. The authorized keys files now supports a new verify-required option that requires FIDO signatures assert that the token verified that the user was present before making the signature. The FIDO protocol supports multiple methods of user verification, but currently OpenSSH only supports pin verification. So on certain hosts, you can say, make sure that not only was the key verified, but that we actually asked the user for their pin in order to get in here. Basically a way to require multi-factor authentication. Um, they also added the SSH config add keys to agent keyword to accept a time limit for keys in addition to its current flag options. The time limited keys are automatically be removed from the SSH agent after their expire time. Oh, which is nice. Cool. Um, SCP and SFDP have the capital A flag to explicitly make agent forwarding in SCP and SFDP. Uh, the default remains not to forward the agent even if SSH config enables it. So if you specifically need uh, to have agent forwarding when doing SCP or SFDP, I imagine that's usually when you have to go through a jump host. So you're trying to SCP but via a jump host, and so you need the agent forwarding to, to authenticate. All good stuff. Definitely worth updating. Yep. Uh, and then SSH-keygen now has a dash D option that allows you to read the key from standard input. That's the key you want to delete. So if you want to remove a key from your SSH agent, uh, you can pipe that key in instead of having to put it in the command line. Mm. Uh, and also the SSHD itself, they've improved the logging of the max startup connection throttling. Uh, this will log when it starts and stops throttling and periodically uh, while it's in that state. So in order to deal with the kind of bots attacking your SSHD, SSHD has a limit of how many clients it'll start up at once. And there's basically two numbers. Like once there's more than this many open connections, start throttling and don't allow more than the maximum. But between that kind of start and the maximum of the throttling, it will just randomly ignore a certain level of incoming connections um, to prevent so if, if someone is basically doing a denial of service attack against your SSH, there's still a chance, if you try enough, the administrator has a chance to actually get a connection. Uh, so that, you know, when you're getting spam from many hosts, you they all have an equal chance of, of eventually getting a connection, which would allow the administrator to log in. Uh, but now it actually logs when that's happening so that you can tell that that's what's going on. In the flood of storms. Uh, and then there's a, a long list of bug fixes and some portability fixes. Okay. Very good. This episode of BSD Now is sponsored by our friends at Tarsnap, which is the online and secure backup solution you should trust and can trust your data to. So think about this. Many of these online backup providers let charge you with a monthly fee to actually store your data because they maybe have a big data center with a lot of storage in there. Tarsnap does it a bit differently. You charge up your Tarsnap account with a certain number of euro doesn't have, or not, or euros. <laughs> 
US dollars, of course, or Canadian dollars that they will tell you what currency they accept. And let's say you put in $5 and you upload some important files there. The nice thing, if you upload these files in January and need them back on December, you don't need to pay anything in the month between. Only the use of the data is being charged. And if you don't use or require your backups or put something new in there, then Tarsnap won't charge it for you. So everything that you use is being charged. Everything that you don't use isn't. There's no monthly fee. There's no extra service charge or anything. So Tarsnap gives you that. In addition, it stores your files encrypted and the encryption happens before the files go out into the AWS cloud, which is used as the storage. And the keys to the data to get your files unencrypted back is never leaving your computer. So this is your personal key. This is the key to unlock your data again. And this is encrypted locally, as I said, and then moved out into the Tarsnap service or the, the storage there. And then it waits there until it's needed again. It's downloaded using your key. You can unencrypt it and have your data back. And Tarsnap does it all for you in a very comprehensive utility because if you can use Tar, then basically with a few more extensions, Tarsnap is basically the same and it's quite easy to use. So it's secure, it's encrypted, it's on a big storage server on AWS cloud, where it's probably more storage space than you can ever use. And you only get charged again, only the stuff that you used will be built to you. Check out the many clients that are available also for Tarsnap on the BSDs, Linuxes, macOS. It's available for Sequin or the Windows subsystem for Linux. And it's all kind of different things, all good reasons to use Tarsnap and check it out. Comprehensive documentation available, you can read the source code even, and it's all explained on the Tarsnap website. So check out tarsnap.com slash BSD now to get that information. All right, it's feedback and questions time in this episode. We should definitely mention that we are going to fill a future episode with the questions that you might have for us, Alan, myself, JT, all the people around doing this podcast or this show. Yeah, like uh, I think what we have in mind is the audience interviewing us. So send us questions you want us to answer, not, uh, you know, continue to send us your questions about BSD that sure. we're going to answer as part of our normal feedback. But uh, if you actually have interview questions to ask us, uh, we'd uh, like to do an episode where we answer those. Yeah, we haven't done those in a while. So everything you want to know, what kind of keyboard are you using? What mouse type you have? Or does Alan got a new uh, screen recently and you didn't? Did you get one? Ah, we'll, we'll see. No. Uh, <laughs> nevertheless, all kinds of questions you can think of and always wanted to ask, let us know at feedback at bsdnow.tv. And the first one who had a BSD-related question of sorts is Dane. And Dane wanted to know... Uh, FreeBSD versus Linux in microservices and containers. It goes like this. Hey, Alan and Benedict. I'm pretty new to your podcast, but I'm really enjoying it. Thank you. If you don't think this question fits in with the direction of the show, I think it does. Uh, I totally understand skipping it. No, we don't. Okay. I know FreeBSD is heavily used across the internet, but when people talk about multi-cloud and microservices, infra providers like AWS and GCP, Google Compute, and 
platform, uh, are pushing their managed Kubernetes offerings, their Docker container services, and their Linux distros. From my perspective, I need to think about how my code will run on Linux. There's no reason to consider how it'll run on BSD, because I know it'll run in a Docker container ultimately running on Linux. I would love to see FreeBSD front and center the way Linux is right now. Is that something the BSD community wants? Do they want Docker to toggle between C groups or jails, depending on the OS, like Docker file containing from FreeBSD 12? Nomad runs on FreeBSD natively, but Kubernetes needs Docker, so I guess that goes back to my previous question. After writing all of this, I think my question is, it feels like today's best practice for developing web services, distributed systems, etc., are to build for Docker, ultimately building for Linux only. Can FreeBSD compete more here, and is that something the community wants? So I think yes. The, it is something the community wants, but there are kind of some assumptions in here. Like um, a lot of the concepts are applicable to FreeBSD and so on. But if people are very tied to wanting it has to be Kubernetes and it has to be Docker, then it it becomes harder. Um, like you said, Nomad can do any basically does what Kubernetes does, but people are are focused on Kubernetes, and it kind of raises this infrastructure question of you know, we're building roads. Uh, are those roads only for this brand of car? Or can people also drive motorcycles and trucks on them? And, you know, it, it sometimes it seems like somehow it was decided that Kubernetes and Docker was the answer to everything, and there's no room for other options. So while it'd be nice to have uh, Docker be able to do things on FreeBSD, it does raise the question of what would those look like? Are people thinking, I want to just take the pre-built Docker images that contain Linux and run them on top of FreeBSD? Or are we going to end up, if, if the goal is use Docker on FreeBSD to run FreeBSD inside of it, it does kind of raise the question is what is Docker providing in that? Like what, what's the value there? If, if we supported Docker fully on FreeBSD today, would it really get much use? Because you know 99% of the Docker images that are out there require Linux right? Because that's all, all, only Linux exists for Docker right now. Uh, and so does it actually do anything? So there's quite a bit of community interest, but I don't know that there's enough business interest uh, in order to make a lot more happen. Basically, there's a lot of work to be done uh, and it won't happen very quickly if there's not enough money behind it. Yeah, and we will see how it develops. If people really like that, then the chances are bigger than someone will sit down and actually make that possible. And adopt it or port it over to the BSDs or FreeBSD in this case. So it's always the case that someone needs a bigger, you know, itch to scratch and actually make it work other than people waiting for it to happen or fall in their laps magically. And that usually doesn't happen. So it's always the need for, from one side, the community and the operating system having the resources available to develop that. And also maybe, um, the need of the marketplace or the, the users out there. So there is the, there, are, there are these two sides. We saw that with other things that uh, in the past were very popular, but once we adopted them in the BSD space, they got out of fashion and something else was new and, and shiny. So it's always a bit of catching up. Yeah. I think the other thing is there's this misconception that Docker could just be made to work with jails very easily. And it's not quite that easy because there are more of the, I guess, the other things that Docker does, which are, uh, you know, configuring the host firewall and a bunch of other things so that when a Docker, if you have an Nginx in a Docker, it will forward uh, some port 
on your system into the Nginx and the Docker, and that bit would have to be made to work, and that's more complicated than just being like, oh, instead of using this LXD command or whatever to create the cgroup container, just create a jail. That's only a part of the solution. Yeah. And imagine also the different use cases. You would probably not run your Kubernetes on an embedded device or on your desktop. This is a very server space centered solution. And the BSDs can be used not only on servers, they can be used in various other areas. Right. Well, that's, that's not to say that you can't do this stuff sure. on FreeBSD. Like we said, you can use Nomad and Jails instead of Kubernetes and Dockers, but, you know, Kubernetes and Docker are the, the brand names of these solutions right now. And yes, it would be great uh, to make FreeBSD compete more here, there. It's just harder to make the business case for somebody to spend the money to make it happen. Yep. Okay, so next up in our uh, feedback and questions is Michael with the TMAX license uh, correction or, or more a feedback to a feedback we did. And that goes, Alan and Benedict and JT and and all the other contributors. I was listening to episode 367 and just wanted to let you guys know that while Screen is definitely GPL, Tmux is ISC licensed. Aha. Uh -huh. I might be wrong, but I think that would mean it's allowed to be in the base system with bind uh, being ISC until 9.11 and it was included, right? Sure. So maybe it could be installed by default. That would be pretty cool since it's definitely part of a lot of people's basic toolbox. Yeah, although I don't know that it's worth building it in, partly because it means you can't get newer versions of Tmux. Like, if FreeBSD 12.0 shipped with the Tmux that existed then, uh, by time 12.3 comes out, you're dealing with a four-year-old version of Tmux, and you're maybe wishing that you could just package upgrade and get a newer Tmux. Uh, so I don't know that it's worth putting in the base, but yes, the ISC license would mean it is very suitable to be go into base. Mm. Oh, yes, and being uh, talking about outdated Tmux, I've had situations where the client couldn't attach to a detached Tmux because it was too old. Ah, if you leave a Tmux running when you upgrade Tmux, yes. Yeah. I had similar problems with Screen. Mm, yeah, but then again, uh, Curl is MIT and X-ish licensed, and Z-Shell with MIT, but not for some GPL gel shell functions, which may not really belong in base or would require tweaking beforehand. Yeah, the same applies to those two as well. When I heard that I never need to use Telnet again, if curl is installed, I welled up with tears a little. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, curl Telnet slash hostname port or IP uh, does the same thing as Telnet hostname or IP and port without the colon in between. Adding dash V for verbose uh, and or dash dash connect dash timeout three makes it even better because if, you, if your target hostname has multiple A records and gets a failure, it'll try them all. Also, timing out automatically means no need for control D, C, or whatever to get back to your shell. Pretty neat. Anyway, just some food for thought. Thanks for the wonderful show. Sure. Yes, thanks for the feedback. Uh, I hadn't actually looked at the Tmux license, but I think it's included in OpenBSD, so I figured. The curl tip is a good one. I hadn't thought of that. Most times that I'm using Telnet, I'm actually abusing it, and I don't actually need Telnet, and it's just finger memory. Otherwise, I could just use NC or Netcat. Mm. But if you need real Telnet, that curled is a good tip because, you know, there's been talk about removing Telnet from FreeBSD because it's been the source of a couple of vulnerabilities around its Kerberos and encryption options and so on. Uh, and just pulling it out entirely would be nice. Yeah. So we will never get heckled about it again. <laughs> uh, anyway, that pretty much uh, wraps up our feedback and questions this week and this episode as well. Thank you for uh, joining us, listening to us, and 
Oh, people keep joining our little experiment on Twitch. So you can find us live on twitch.tv slash bsdnow and listen or see us even doing this show. And that's still up until the next episode is recorded, if I recall correctly. Uh, I think that, yeah. So on our website, we have our DVR replay buffer, but I think the, uh, the Twitch things stay up for two weeks, which is nice as well. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And people have been subscribing, so you can also do that if you like to get notified when we are live. Anyway, thank you for listening and until next time.